The current edition of The Atlantic magazine, Jennifer Senior, has an article entitled The Puzzling Gap Between How Old You Are and How Old You Think You Are. And she begins the essay like this. This past Thanksgiving, I asked my mother how old she was in her head. She didn't pause, didn't look up, didn't even ask me to repeat the question, which would have been natural given that it was both syntactically awkward and a little odd. We were in my brother's dining room setting the table. My mother, folding another napkin, said, 45. Her actual age is 76. Senior continues, why do so many people have an immediate intuitive grasp of this highly abstract concept, subjective age as it's called, when randomly presented with it? It's bizarre if you think about it. Certainly most of us don't believe ourselves to be shorter or taller than we actually are. We don't think of ourselves as having smaller ears or longer noses or curlier hair yet we seem to have an awfully rough go of locating ourselves in time, end quote. Well, it turns out there's been quite a bit of research into uh, this concept of subjective age. The question here isn't how old do you feel, which would normally elicit an answer to do with how you're feeling physically, your health. No, the question is specifically how old are you in your head? And it turns out that those of us who are adults over the age of 40 perceive ourselves to be, on average, about 20% younger than our actual age. And just in case you're wondering, guilty as charged. And when the researchers got into the reasons for this perception, it turns out there were a range of theories. On the more positive end, there's an argument that viewing yourself as younger is a view of optimism, not pessimism says that you can still foresee many years of generative production ahead of you. But on the negative end, there is the sober truth that for many people, aging is considered an outright catastrophe. This is perhaps where the article didn't push as hard as it could have done, because it seems to me that for a lot of people, aging is a catastrophe because the inevitable outcome of aging is death, and for many people today, death is still the great taboo. As human beings, we're obsessed with death, and yet, ironically, we really don't like to talk about it. We're used to being in control, and in the modern Western world, we manage to control so much. Think of the astonishing progress we've made in the development of communications and technology in the last few decades. But we cannot control death, and we don't like it. We can delay it. We can disguise its onset. We might try to turn a deaf ear to it, but we can't defeat it. At times we might try to laugh it off. Woody Allen once famously said, it's not that I'm afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But perhaps less well-known are some words of Allen's in a 1977 Esquire magazine interview where he said this, the fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and death. It is absolutely stupefying, it is terror, and it renders everyone's accomplishments meaningless. We're currently in a sermon series where we're looking at the authentic Jesus, taking a close look at the primary sources of the Gospels, trying to understand better who Jesus is, uh, what He came to do, and why He matters. And today we come to the theme of Jesus and His understanding of death as presented by the Gospel writer John in his account of the raising of Lazarus. 
Raising of Lazarus was a favorite story amongst the early Christians. In a study of paintings of the Roman catacombs, it turned out that the raising of Lazarus was the second most represented New Testament depiction after that of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. That in an age where the Christians were subjected to violence and to persecution and to martyrdom, John's account of Lazarus's rising assured those catacomb Christians that death whenever or however it came, would not have the last word. In other words, through their faith in Jesus, these early Christians had acquired an understanding of life that provided for them an answer to the reality of death. And my question for you this morning is simply this, do you? Do you have an understanding of life that has given you an ability to face the inevitable reality of death, however close or far off that might seem to you this morning? We're going to see here how Jesus in this story provides us with an answer to death as we look through the lens of three of his actions in this story as recorded by John. First of all, Jesus is waiting. Secondly, Jesus is wailing. And thirdly, Jesus is weeping. And it's through these actions that we gain unparalleled uh, insight into Jesus' intentionality and emotionality regarding death. We're actually going to be thinking about the entire story here today that stretches in, in John 11 from verse 1 to verse 44. And so if you have a Bible nearby, it might be helpful to have it open as we follow along. But for now, I'm just going to read uh, the section of the story that's printed in your order of worship this morning uh, from verse 1 to verse 27. So beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he had fallen, has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whenever you ask, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. 
Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Let's uh, pray together. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So let's first think about uh, Jesus' waiting. uh, John tells us here of this sick man, Lazarus of Bethany. Turns out he's no ordinary sick man. This is Lazarus, who is the brother of Martha and Mary, close friends of Jesus. Indeed, in verse 5, John tells us that Jesus loved Martha, loved Mary, loved Lazarus. And that's important for us as readers to know, because what comes next in the next verse seems rather unloving. And Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And the immediate questions that we have as readers is why? Why on earth would Jesus have deliberately delayed here? Why upon hearing of his beloved friend's failing health, does Jesus not just drop everything and book it to Bethany? Well, it turns out that Jesus has something bigger in mind than merely keeping Lazarus alive. When he's told that Lazarus is ill, Jesus' response comes in verse 4. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And at this point in the story, John doesn't tell us exactly how Jesus will be glorified through what is going on, just that he will, but it quickly becomes apparent that The path to this glory is going to first involve Lazarus succumbing to his illness and actually dying. And so it is that two days later, as we're told in verses 11 to 14, Jesus, despite no further news flashes from Bethany, is able to authoritatively tell his disciples that Lazarus has indeed died. In the end, it would be four days from Lazarus' death before Jesus arrives in Bethany. One suggestion made by various commentators is that the delay of four days was because Jesus wanted to make sure that Lazarus was really dead, 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 before he brings him back to life. In this view, perhaps Jesus wanted to avoid a scenario similar to that in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, if you're familiar with that film, where uh, some of you may recall, in order to avoid the cart of corpses, the guy keeps shouting, I'm not dead yet. More seriously, there was an early rabbinic belief that the soul of a dead body remained in the vicinity of the body for three days, hoping to re-enter it. But once decomposition set in on the fourth day, the soul departed. And since we're told all the way down in verse 39 that Lazarus' body was then at the stage of starting to decompose and give off a stench, there may be something to the suggestion. But applying the details of this scenario to ourselves does raise a related question in our own context, and it's this. Why does God, when we ask Him for something, even when He intends to give us that something, why does He so often delay in giving it to us? Why does he wait? And the answer here would appear to be that it's not only because of God's glory, but it's also because of his love. That Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved Martha. He loved Mary. That God's timing is always fine-tuned according to his love. It may not feel like it. Oftentimes, it doesn't feel like it at all. It feels very unloving. But as James Baldwin alludes to in his book, The Fire This Time, the Lord never seems to get there when you want Him, but when He arrives, He's always right on time. 
The Lord never seems to get there when you want him, but when he arrives, he's always right on time. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews reassures us along similar lines uh, when we find ourselves in God's waiting room in uh, Hebrews 4.16, a verse that some of you may know quite well. Uh, it's a verse that's traditionally worded like this, let us approach with boldness the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace in, for help in time of need. But there's another and equally valid way to translate the end of that verse. It goes like this, let us approach with boldness the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace for a well-timed help. There's no contradiction between those two renderings. The emphasis is just different. In the first, grace for help in time of need draws our attention to the need. But in the second, grace for a well-timed help focuses our attention on God's timing. And that's helpful because it's not very common for us to think that God's grace will be shown to us as much in the timing of how He answers as in the form of how He answers. But it is. His timing is always best, is always designed to increase our trust in His love for Him. The Lord never seems to get there when you want Him, but when He arrives, He's always right on time. Hence, here, Jesus is waiting. Well, that brings us secondly to Jesus' wailing. Jesus arrives at the scene of bereavement here in Bethany. He's greeted initially by Lazarus' sister Martha and then subsequently by Mary. We'll come back to the details of those conversations in a moment or two. But it's when Jesus, in this context of bereavement and grief, Jesus sees uh, Mary weeping down in verse 33. And those who had come to console the family also weeping, that John tells us that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Literally, John says, Jesus snorted. So indignant was he with what he had come upon, so troubled. This is really important for us to notice here. Jesus wails at death here because he knows that death is an unwelcome intruder in our world. Death is a thief. Death is not the way things are meant to be. It's here really that Jesus starts to push against some of the modern responses that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, the modern responses to death. For example, he refuses to go down the, the path of denying the reality of death. One of the most frequently read poems at funerals is, this, is a poem called Death is Nothing at All. It begins like this, death is nothing at all. I've only slipped away to the next room. I am I and you are you what we were to each other, that we are still. And that's utter nonsense. And everybody knows it. Nobody in a church or at a, at a graveside or in a funeral home hearing that believes those words. No one does. No one thinks, yes, we're, we're just the same. We're still the same and nothing really has changed because nothing's the same. And that's why we grieve. We would love to walk into the next room and have a conversation with the person like we've done thousands of times previously, but they're not the same because they were, because they're dead. Death is this brutal intruder, and, and that's too much for some of us to take, and so we pretend that it's not there or that it doesn't matter. But just sit with, with Jesus here at this point, wailing 
at this point. Just sit with this for a moment and think. Jesus here knows. He knows that within the hour, he's going to be sitting down having a cup of tea and cucumber sandwiches or whatever with, with Lazarus, who he's raised from the dead. And yet still here, he bellows, he bellows at death with indignation at death, this intruder. He wails in lament because death is not the way things are meant to be. One of the verses I've often read at graveside burials is from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 13. He writes this, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, notice what Paul writes here. He says, those of us who are followers of Jesus do not grieve like others because we have hope. He does not say that we do not grieve because we have hope. Rather, we do not grieve like others. That as Christians, of course, we grieve. We wail at death. Death is an intruder. Death is an enemy. The consequences, the Bible says, of human sin and rebellion against God. So Christians grieve at death. So Paul in no way is commending some kind of stoical, stiff upper lip lip, or implying that Christians have sort of moved on from the experience of emotions. If anything, with the, the example of Jesus here, the perfect sinless human being wailing at death, you could make the argument that grief is actually sharper in the life of the Christian. Because when when someone becomes a Christian, he or she grows in their emotional capacities as God regenerates every part of us, that the gospel increases our humanity, our ability to feel, that our senses are deepened, not dulled, that our emotions are sharper, which means that our grief is sharper. At the age of 23, the son of the philosopher and Christian writer Nicholas Walterstorff was involved in a mountain climbing accident in which he died. And Walterstorff wrote a book in response to his son's death entitled Lament for a Son, and in it he wrote this. There is a hole in the world now, and the place where he was is now just nothing. A center like no other of memory and hope, of knowledge and affection which once inhabited this earth is gone. Only a gap remains. Perspective on this world, unique in this world, which once moved about in this world, has just been rubbed out. Only a void is left. There is nobody now who saw what he saw, who knows what he knew, who remembers what he remembered, who loves what he loved. A person, an irreplaceable person, is gone. Questions I have can never now get answers. The world is emptier. My son is gone. Only a hole remains. A void a gap never to be filled, end quote. And you sense the grief there, don't you? And some of us, perhaps most of us, don't just sense the grief with which Walter Storff writes here. We're thinking to ourselves, he just put into words exactly what I felt at the death of a loved one, at the death of a family member, at the death of a really, really close friend. Perhaps put into words what Jesus was feeling as he wailed at the death of his beloved friend, Lazarus. The Apostle Paul wrote that we do not grieve like others who have no hope, because as Christians, we do have hope. And that brings us to our third heading, Jesus' weeping. 
And to get our bearings here, I want to read on in the story uh, from where our reading took us a little earlier. So again, if you have a Bible nearby, you might want to follow along. I'm going to pick it up uh, in verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him, dropping down to verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Now, it's not hard to sense here a certain level of frustration, maybe even anger, on the part of these two sisters. I mean, imagine making a 911 call, and it's two days before the emergency services turn up at your apartment. Jesus gets the call about Lazarus being ill, and he stays where he is for 48 more hours. So here John lets us listen into this conversation, a conversation that could feel pretty awkward, you imagine, between Jesus and, and Mary and Martha. The first conversation comes with Martha. Martha comes out to Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Martha replies, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, which was a common Jewish belief. And Jesus says, no, Martha, listen, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. We'll come back to those words in a moment. But after Jesus speaks these powerful words to Martha, Martha goes in, tells her sister Mary that Jesus is asking for her. Mary hurries out to Jesus. But did you notice what Mary says to Jesus when she gets outside? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The exact same words with which Martha had greeted Jesus. So just ponder this for a moment. Here you have two sisters grieving a common brother, similar situation of grief, therefore, who speak the same words to Jesus upon his arrival. And you're thinking to yourself, well, Jesus is going to say the same thing to Mary that he just said to Martha, right? Same sisters, same situation, same words. It's going to launch into an explanation how he's the resurrection and the life. But that's not what he does, is it? We read that in response to Mary's words, Jesus wept. For one, he offers words. For the other, he sheds tears. So why the two different reactions? I think the best answer is simply that Jesus is the counselor par excellence. Jesus understands that no two people deal with grief exactly the same way. No two people deal with anything the same way. And so, Jesus ministers to us not in some kind of cookie-cutter counseling textbook technique, but according to what we each individually ultimately need, which is a beautiful thing to consider. 
that Jesus knew that Mary and Martha weren't processing grief in the same way, and so he wasn't going to minister to them in the same way, but in a different way. And the same is true for us. Jesus' wisdom, his care, his comfort for you will be the most nuanced, the most sensitive, the most suited that you could ever know. And that's not just true in times of bereavement, it's true in, in all times, whether it's times of sadness, brokenness, anxiety, worry, that Jesus knows what you need better than you know yourself, and He will comfort you as you turn to Him. So, Jesus knew Mary, and so at that very moment, He knew that Mary didn't need words, she needed tears. But do not think that these are kind of Jesus just forcing a few crocodile tears here. This was a case where, as one commentator, Jesus said, Jesus bawled. He bawled His eyes out. The outrage at death that Jesus expressed in his wailing is probably still simmering here, but there's more than just outrage on display in Jesus' tears. These tears demonstrated his deep identification with this dearest of friends who was grief-stricken. They revealed the breaking of his heart for the one whose heart was also broken. And you can be sure that his heart breaks for those of us here today whose hearts might be breaking this morning. Jesus wept. But rewind the tape just a little bit with me to see how the means by which Jesus sought to comfort Martha. For Martha, what was needed was not weeping, it was words. Again, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I'm sure those are familiar words to many of us here and comforting words. But what exactly does Jesus mean with the kind of two halves of that statement? Jesus is actually teaching here that there are two types of death. There is firstly physical death, which separates us from physical life. That's what Lazarus had just experienced. But Jesus says that for those who trust in Him, who bank their lives on Him, that death will never be forever. Physical death for the followers of Jesus, is of a limited duration. But there is a second kind of death, Jesus tells us here. It's a more subtle sort of death, but also a more serious kind of death, because the second kind of death is a spiritual death, which involves everlasting separation from God. And here's the dilemma for every single one of us this morning, that if your physical death arrives before you found a solution to your spiritual death, then you're going to remain separated from the God of life for all of eternity. The stakes are are that high. And if that sounds very sobering, and it should, then I have some astoundingly good news for you. Actually, Jesus has the good news for you right here. He says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Whoever trusts in me will never suffer this second kind of death, this spiritual death, this separation from God, but will rather enjoy life not just now but forever, a life that goes beyond our wildest imaginations that will never end. But let me close with this. On what basis could Jesus make such an astounding claim to say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives, believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. 
Well, it was because Jesus knew not only what he was about to do here in Bethany, but what lay beyond these events in Bethany. Picking up the story again in verse 38, Jesus approaches Lazarus's tomb, which would have been this cave with a stone laid across its entrance, and with Lazarus stone dead inside, Jesus commands that they roll the stone away. Martha, again, as we mentioned earlier, objects on the basis that it's been four days. The stench would be absolutely awful, but Jesus insists that they remove the stone, which they do. And then Jesus cries out with words that Dale Bruner refers to as the roar heard round the world, Lazarus, come out. And with the most understated matter-of-factness, John writes, the man who had died came out. Lazarus, who had been dead, was now alive. And as marvelous and as grand as, a, as this story is, however, it really is just a story within the greater story. Because the raising of Lazarus was really just the warm-up act for the main event. It really was just the trailer for the main feature. And Jesus had clued us into this near the beginning and also does so again at the end. Back in verse 4, remember, he says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 40, Jesus said to Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Glory actually is one of the great themes through the entire gospel of John. But while it clearly breaks through in all of Jesus' miraculous signs, such as this one, this glory is not primarily about the glitter and the glow of these supernatural miracles. No, actually, everything in John's gospel is moving towards the climax of Jesus being glorified when, as John puts it, Jesus is lifted up lifted up on a cross to die and to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might be forgiven and we might live forever. The glory of God was not to be seen merely in Jesus miraculously bringing back to life a man who had been dead for four days. No, the, the glory of God would ultimately be seen here because as you read on in John 11 and into John 12, you discover that the raising of Lazarus is actually the turning point that leads to the events of Holy Week that we'll begin to think about next Sunday. In other words, in John's gospel, it is at this point that the religious authorities start planning the death of the man who has just defeated death. In the big story, the significance of this story of the raising of dead Lazarus was that it would propel Jesus towards his own death on the cross that the irony of this miracle was that Jesus called forth Lazarus from one grave in order that he himself might enter another. And that, of course, is what he would do. Be arrested, he would be beaten, he would be tried by a kangaroo court, he would be executed then, lifted up on a cross, put in a tomb, buried in a tomb, but the difference with this burial was that this corpse did not need someone outside the tomb to call it to life because this corpse belonged to the one who is the resurrection and the life himself. That death could not hold this one down. So on the third day after he died, he rose again. And unlike Lazarus, 
was never to die again, but would live forever. Jesus demonstrated, the authentic Jesus demonstrated the authenticity of his claim by dying and rising again, never to die another time. And because Jesus, therefore, has defeated death, it is entirely reasonable for you and for me to trust that if you trust in this Jesus, whoever lives and believes in this Jesus will also never die. Never die. You know, when Jesus said to Martha, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, right after that, he said to her, do you believe this? And it's the same question he asks all of us this morning. Do you believe this? The stakes, as I said earlier, could not be higher. But the promise could not be grander. Jesus said, if you will trust me with your life, then you can trust me with your death as well. Trust me with your life, and you can trust me with your death. Because whoever lives and believes in Jesus will never die. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who has defeated death. And in this sign that you gave, raising Lazarus from the death, you not only foretold what you were going to do, but you gave us your, your whole attitude about death, how it's an enemy, but how you've come to defeat it, and how you welcome all who trust in you to know victory over death as well. Help us to take this in. Help us to believe it as Martha would come to believe it so that it changes our lives now and in the future. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.